I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends, taste, brands, and products. Episode 21, we're going to take it way back to Nostalgia Town with a two-part slumber party series where we go back to the tween and teen trends of the 90s. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're all very excited about this. I don't know about you, Amanda, you know, it has been kind of a trip mm-hmm. and I've definitely been thinking about things I haven't thought about in a very long time. Mm-hmm. But before we get comfortable... Uh, I just want to ask you all for a favor. If you have a moment, we just wanted to remind everyone to follow us on your streaming service, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, however you're listening to us or like to listen to us, just so that you can get notified when we have new episodes dropping. Um, And then if you use Apple Podcasts, please make sure to give us a star rating. You know, it takes no more than one second of your time. I've actually seen a, a, a significant bump in them recently amanda i don't know if you've looked uh we're past 20 wow (laughs) star ratings which is great uh it makes me so excited you know it it does kind of it 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 kind of gives us a little more motivation to keep going when we know that people are actually you know engaged Mm -hmm. um and if you're feeling particularly chatty please toss in a review we absolutely love them um but Either way, those ratings and those reviews really help us get seen. They help move us up. You know, um, there's a lot of a lot going on within like these searches with inside these podcasts. Um, and when you have more ratings and reviews, it just helps bump, bump you up there. Um, so yeah, also, you know, um, make sure to check out our show notes at the, at our website, the department.world. We put a lot of information on there and we also have a pretty sweet Instagram account full of a lot of shareable content and memes. Um, so make sure to follow us on Instagram It's at underscore the (laughs) underscore department. You can, you can find it on our website, the department.world as well, if that's very complicated. Um, but we have a really great community growing on our Instagram and we'd love to have you join us. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to jump right in here with a slight soft opening, Amanda. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it definitely is, you know, it references what we're going to be talking about. So before we get into talking about slumber parties and other 80s and 90s trends, do you have any distinct recollections of any trends and things that you and your friends would do at slumber parties? Um. Well, first off, someone would get in a fight with someone. <laughs> Really? I don't know what it was. Oh. I, you know, I don't know about you, but I always felt like when it was going to be a slumber party that was more than one or two people, it was like so yeah. exciting. You know, it was like a big yeah. deal and uh, you'd be so keyed up going into it. And then like, it would be weird all night long. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, so weird. I mean, we would like definitely play truth or dare always mm-hmm. like you have to. Right. And also, I mean, you and I are working on another episode about this, so I don't want to spoil it too much, but this yeah, yeah. was the golden era of really bizarre hairstyling tools, and there was a lot of, like, crimping and stuff going on at the slumber mm-hmm. parties. <laughs> yeah. 
Was there a specific friend that would have the slumber parties or was it all of them? Well, like everyone did it. My friend Jessica, she had the best place to have slumber parties because they had like a huge rec room in the basement where we could all oh, we could yeah. go, go. And they also had a pool. So, I mean, that's like you know, oh, everything, Mecca. right? Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's, a, that's a five-star Yelp review. Yeah, right exactly, there. exactly. So it would always be like, can we just do it at Jessica's? Plus her mom yeah. like loved a party and would like cook us all kinds of good <gasps> food and stuff. So that – I mean, I've been to many great slumber parties, but hers mm-hmm. were just like easy, easy fun. Mm-hmm. Just good – you know, and you had the space, you had the mm-hmm. pool, you had the the snacks. Yeah, we did a lot of um, light as a feather, stiff as a board. Actually, oh. there was a variation that we would always do, which was insanely effective, which is why we did it so much, <laughs> <laughs> and always extremely shocking. Where you basically this the person would sit on a chair, and it, I think you had to have at least three people. Um, and you'd put your hands to, in together over that person and you count to 10 together. And then you put your, turn your fingers into like guns, you know, like little finger guns. And then you lift that person and they would just fly right off, like right up. It, what? As if they weighed nothing. Wow. And it was something about like a teamwork exercise that I hear, heard that like sports game, you know, um, teams would do sometimes. But it worked. It worked so well. And it was so insane. And I never knew how it worked. Um, and I, I was trying to Google it just right before this, trying to figure out if there was a name for it. But I couldn't I couldn't find it. All I get is light as a feather, stiff as a board, which has all this like mumbo jumbo around it. And I was mm. like, well, we didn't do it like that. We just did it because it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's really cool. I want to try it right now. But I'm only here with one person in your pad. So I don't know how it works. <laughs> we also did a Ouija board too. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about Ouija boards today because oh, okay, cool. I feel like they are a very important part of what you might call slumber party culture. It is. <laughs> it is. It's full about it's all slumber party culture right there. Yeah, um, totally. And I think in middle school, in high school, we had a lot of these church lock-ins. Oh <gasps> um, yeah, yeah. Which, I think we're like an elevated slumber party. It was so much fun. Totally, totally. We also we did Girl Scout lock-ins, which were like yeah. also really fun, and would yeah. also be in a church basement usually. And like we would yeah. do crafts all night long and like drink cocoa, mm-hmm. and it was so fun. Like I, I love a lock-in. A lock-in is so much better. Sleepover. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is more variety of people and like more activities because I think sometimes you just start to get bored at the slumber party and then everybody's acting yeah. up, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I remember my mother would always be planning, you know, the birthday parties, and then it it changed over to, to you being old enough to have a slumber party, and she'd always try. You know, she's just she's a teacher. You know, she was an mm-hmm. elementary school teacher, so she always wanted to plan things out. Um, but once you get old enough, there's not really a plan. It's like, okay, let's go to the video store and rent a video. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I can't believe I forgot about that. The video renting. The video renting. Yes. That was very important. Yes. Very important. There was going to be a point when you just couldn't deal with each other and you just wanted to watch yeah, a video. Totally. Totally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what, what a time. What a time. So the slumber party was the quintessential life experience for girls of the 80s and 90s. And if you are not familiar with that term, which I think means you've barely lived life, uh, you might also call it a pajama party, which I've never called it. That sounds kind of dirty to me, right? That's like 50s. Yeah, totally, totally. That's like um, uh, uh, Greece. (laughs) 
Right. Totally. <laughs> or you might call it a sleepover, which I never mm-hmm. really called it that either. Slumber party is like, it's a party. A sleepover is like a one person stays over. That's what I think. So mm-hmm. I actually was like, okay, I'm going to figure out the origin story of slumber parties. I actually thought that maybe they did start in the 80s, but it turns out that term slumber party originated back in the 40s. Uh I had visions of all kinds of think pieces about the history of the slumber party. Well, guess what? They don't exist, which I think is a major loss to humanity. Mm. But I did come across in 1965, Mattel released a very controversial and I would say ill-advised slumber party Barbie have you heard of this? Have you heard no. of this? Well, first off, she was definitely not wearing the kind of pajamas that you and I wore to slumber parties. I can assure you. They were kind of sexy and oh. more of a pajama party look if, if we're getting down to brass tacks. Because really, really at a, like an 80s and 90s slumber party, you wore the, those like really big oversized like hyper-colored tee or some totally, sort of giant, totally. giant tee. Totally. Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. Uh the weird th- – I mean, well, there are a lot of weird things about Slumber Party Barbie, but what was controversial <laughs> about her was she came with two things in the package outside of her clothes and, like, I think a pillow. She came with a scale. Like what? A, th- that was frozen at 110 pounds and a book that was called How to Lose Weight. It only had one piece of advice in it, and that was don't eat. Wait. What? I don't know what kind of slumber parties Barbie's been going to, but we certainly never weighed ourselves and talked about diet no, tips. In fact, we ate we so ate much pizza, pizza and Doritos. <laughs> Doritos. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is like not a fun slumber party. The, I mean, there was a lot of outrage about this. So the next year in 1966, Mattel was like, all right, rebrand. We're going to release the exact same Barbie with a new name, Sleepy Time Gal Barbie. <laughs> And she was still obsessed with her weight? She still came with the scale, but she didn't come with the book. And I'm like, once again, like, what kind of slumber parties were they having in the 60s where you would do a weigh-in? This is like a nightmare. This is like something, um, like a man that's like, okay, we need to come up with another idea. And he's like, you know what? I feel like women are so obsessed with talking about their weight. Like, they go to slumber parties and that's all they do is just talk about how to lose weight. Just gas about their weight. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, no. <laughs> I know. I was, I was like, wow, Barbie, you really let us down there. Yeah. Now, in the off chance that you're new to this world, a slumber party is when you and a few of your friends sleep over at another friend's house and you play games, you eat snacks, probably pizza, you mm-hmm. do prank calls, and mm-hmm. you probably at some point get into fights with one another. Yeah. And, the slumber party is included in like all media that was focused on tween and teen girls of the 80s and the 90s. Like I I found so many lists that were like the best slumber parties in television history and things like that. Like <laughs> the one, you know, when we were preparing for this episode, there was one that like to me was iconic, which was on Beverly Hills 90210 in season one. Brenda had this like oh. iconic slumber party where – among other things, we found out that Kelly had a nose job. Now, <laughs> if there was going to be a weigh-in at a slumber party, it would have been that one. That um, sounds – yeah. I think that right? that's the closest to the slumber party Barbie. Yes. Another <laughs> one happened on Saved by the Bell. Now, 
I have watched Saved by the Bell when I was growing up. It was on when all the mm-hmm. cartoons ended every Saturday. Like it would be on at like noon or 11 or something. And I've seen many, many, many episodes of it. But my brain refuses to store any memories of, of Saved by the Bell. So when I read about yeah. this one, I was, then I remembered it, but I didn't think of it off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, in one episode, Zach got Screech to bug the girl's slumber party so he <gasps> could find out how Kelly felt about him. Oh, my God. I know. I, I know. That's hilarious. Um, every Judy Bloom book has a slumber party. Every Sweet Valley Twins book, not Sweet Valley High because they were too old for them, but Sweet Valley Twins, mm-hmm. uh, Babysitter's Club. I mean, that is like one nonstop slumber party. Mm-hmm. You name it. All the tween books had it. Uh, magazines like Teen and Seventeen would suggest games, recipes, quizzes for your party. They they do layouts of the sort of pajamas you might want to wear. And <laughs> I actually thought the episode of Pen15 from season two really oh. nailed all so of the slumber good. party tropes, right? So good. Truth or dare, you got to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Frenemies, <laughs> integral part mm-hmm. of slumber parties. Mm-hmm. The person who falls asleep first and has pranks pulled on them, which uh-huh. they did both the pranks I think that I'm most familiar with. One is the put the hand in the warm water and that will make someone pee themselves. Yeah. And then the drawing on faces, which my friend Jessica's mom was like, no one is allowed to draw on anyone's face. So I feel <laughs> like there was a bad, bad situation with that in the past. Yeah. Um, prank phone calls, which my friends were so into prank phone calls. And – of course, the inevitable fight, which leads to someone leaving early. Yes. Um, and like I was saying earlier, I was always so excited about a slumber party, but but then ultimately it, it could get really stressful depending on who was there. And I did have one frenemy growing up who, if someone was going to bring a scale to a slumber party, it would have been her. <laughs> so she's that person who'd be like, you're going to eat that because you know, that's 378 calories. Oh, God. What that a person. Yes. What a bummer. Uh, always at every slumber party, though. Always mad mm-hmm. at someone. I remember one time she oh. accidentally farted in her sleep and wanted to go home. <laughs> oh. <laughs> anyway. Did she, like, wake herself up or something? Yes, yes. And she wanted to go home. And everybody was like, it's no big deal. And she was, like, sobbing. So, God, being <laughs> a junior high school girl is, like, the worst thing ever. Well, Amanda, I feel like you're missing out on the pillow fight that all girls have at every (laughs) single sleepover you know mostly in just like a bra (laughs) oh yeah it's and sometimes someone's bra might like pop off yeah and then it's like kiss yeah always happening totally lots of makeouts happening at these slumber (laughs) lots of like discovering your sexuality Forties, it's yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we definitely would talk about like when are our boobs going to grow. That was that was yeah. a, a frequent topic of conversation. Like, get out the magic eight ball and let's see when our boobs are going to grow. <laughs> let's ask Ouija. When Ouija, we're when grow. are my boobs coming? Yeah, and what size will they be? Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Lots of boob talk. Well, in the fifties and sixties, let's travel back in time here. Back when people weighed themselves at slumber parties, apparently, uh, advertisers and retailers realized that teenagers were like a cash cow. I mean, they had part-time jobs and allowances thanks to the post-war boom, and they spent all of their money on records and clothes and treats and, you know, just 
it was disposable income. And this was the first time that teenagers got to spend money on themselves because in the past, if you were a teenager who had to have a job, all the money you made went back to your family. Like you were working to take care of your family, right? So, I mean, all kinds of stuff popped up culturally to service these mm. teenagers and all their money. And by the, by the 80s, everyone was really good at selling stuff to teenagers, right? Like that was old news. But in the 80s, all of these retailers and advertisers, you know, all these people who like to make money, all the capitalists, they were sort of like, oh, like it'd be great if we could find someone else to sell stuff to. And they realized a brand new cash cow, and that was the tween girl. Mm-hmm. So tween is loosely defined. I mean, I would say it can be fourth or fifth grade to like eighth grade maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little younger, maybe a little older, kind of depending on, you know, where you grew up and what your life is like. The great thing about the tween girl is that she might still play with toys in one way or another. She probably did. But she was also curious about makeup and clothes and boys and the idea of growing up. Like you could sell her a training bra, you know. So the slumber party was an amazing consumer moment, like so many other things we've talked about here that turned into a way to sell stuff, right? Brands brands saw this. So they could sell like cute nightgowns, even though definitely Kim and I grew up in the same sort of environment where you're just wearing a humongous (laughs) t-shirt, right? Uh, Cute sleeping bags that weren't for camping, but were specifically for slumber parties. Now, I didn't have one of those, but I had friends who did. Like, I had a friend who had a Lisa Frank sleeping bag, and I remember I was, like, very jealous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, What else could they sell them? Cute stuffed animals that turned into pillows. I actually had one of those. Adorable overnight bags that were specifically for sleepovers. And, of course, games. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that more later. I found so many sad articles. I mean, this is going to depress you, Kim. Okay. That said, in the 21st century, kids aren't into slumber parties anymore. Because, really? for, yeah, for one, they would rather hang out at home and just play video games or text with their friends. But more importantly, their parents don't trust their friends' parents to care for or feed their children properly. Oh, and I think that says something about – I mean, it makes sense, right? Because there's so much – So many parents are hung up on, like, what their kids can or cannot eat, the amount of screen time they can get, like, the kind of movies they can watch. I mean, you know. It's like – I feel like when you and I were kids, there were rules. It's not like I got to go see R-rated movies or anything like that. But, like, I could also go just run around and play outside for two hours and no one asked where I went. You know, it was was just different, I guess. It was, yeah. It was, right? Like, we had more independence for sure. There's also so much fear. I mean, in the articles that I read about this, that like an entire slumber party of girls could be abducted and then sex trafficked, that no no one wants a bunch of girls together, possibly completely unsupervised, even if the parents are already home. It's huh. insane. I, I'm actually shocked at that one. I know. I know. Where are you? Where are you? Like, are you in, is this in Vegas? Like, where is, I don't know. I can't I just, people but I guess- are a lot more fearful about their children than they've ever been. And I get it. I we live it. in a crazy world, but I feel like the 
the people who grew up immediately after us were a lot more like helicopter parented than we were. And I feel like now it's even more extreme because like think about it. You don't really see kids just like playing outside alone anymore. You know, they yeah. have like play dates and things like that. I didn't have play dates. I just went outside yeah. and if someone else was around to play, we played. And if not, we didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. Conversely, I found a whole group of articles that said that grown women like us are getting back into slumber parties because they're bored with bars and clubs. And the slumber parties I read about sounded really to me more like a spa night or a bachelorette party. Oh, yeah. So I don't know how I – I mean, what do you think of that, Kim? I feel like that that kind of correlates to that girls that stay at home or the girls' night in trend. Mm Mm-hmm. And, I mean, having a slumber party with your friend – it's just not as it's not as fun because it, you 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 will go to bed and <laughs> I mean it's I don't kind know. of just hanging out with your friend. I mean I think hanging out with friends and doing that kind of stuff is is great. I I don't know that's I don't know this is a I mean this is a it sounds kind of fun to me, but I know that we would all go to sleep anyway. But then I was thinking like oh well, I stay with you all the time when I come to LA. That's like a slumber party, and we'll be it like is. I remember one night we were up all night just reading reviews on Yelp for this, like, bad club, remember? I just, like, cry laughing, you know? Or I was – or, like, how about when you and and Sherry came to Portland for Thanksgiving and we were just, like, drinking and watching Sex and the City for days? That was kind of like a slumber party. It was like a slumber party. I guess it's just we define it differently because I feel like a slumber party is is really for for the younger generation who's still with their – parents Mm -hmm. and it gives you time away just to like connect with your peers and Mm -hmm. right now I feel like all I do is connect with my peers you know (laughs) like that element of of being like kind of like you said independent Mm -hmm. we already have that so you know that's not anything new or special Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I'm like I I mean we could all hang out and do face masks and watch tv you know that sounds great to me actually because Mm -hmm. I only hang out with Dustin and the cats now now I'm like, getting, as we're talking about this, I'm like, oh my God, I can't wait to have a slumber party, mm-hmm. which would really just be called people visiting me and staying with me. Exactly. And, <laughs> but you'll, but, but you'll, you will call it a slumber party. Definitely. Now, from now on. Just, from now and now then on. No, no one will want to come. They'll be like, I don't want to have a slumber party. Yeah. And wear key pajamas or else. <laughs> we're going to, we have a weigh in at 9 p.m. Oh my God. I know. <laughs> Isn't that so bizarre? Anyway, I will say this. A little bit later in the episode, I'm going to talk about some of the games and stuff that people played at slumber parties when we were kids, like that were sold to them, and they're practically away in some of them in terms of how toxic and dumb they are. So, you know, there's room to improve the slumber party experience for sure. So like we like to do around here, we're going to talk about the trends and consumer moments that stemmed from slash coexisted with the slumber party era. Thank you, Amanda. So yeah, we're going to talk about three intertwined trends here um, that I did a bunch of research on, which is the enduring legacy of the Trapper Keeper. Yes. Mixed with the cult of Lisa Frank. Mm-hmm. And that is directly connected to the 80s sticker mania. Yeah. All things I love. Can't wait. All, all things that we love. Okay, so kicking it off with the trend of the Trapper Keeper, you know, the pre-Trapper Keeper era was really a wasteland of boring office and school supplies. 
<laughs> black are just primary colors. Uh, the reason for their success was because they were bold and colorful. It just really appealed towards that audience that they were made for. Um, like kind of no one else in that category. Mm -hmm. uh, they gave an amount of, an, of identity and joy to a generally bleak school day. Jeez. <laughs> I mean, I loved school, so. Oh, jeez. Okay, well, that, that's new. <laughs> um, plus, they they actually really worked for a time being. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't think I knew a single person in school who didn't use a trapper keeper. I think that was just, you just, it, it was uncommon to, to, to not have one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm trying to remember the exact time that they became obsolete. I have been trying to wreck my brain, but I think it was like the mid to late nineties. I don't remember having one in high school, mm -mm. Um, but I do kind of go into why they stopped being popular. Um, and then I do remember that there was something rather unsettling. You know, I, I was looking up these old images of trapper keepers and I started have, kind of having like residual panic attacks about remembering to pick up my school supplies and having to go back and seeing these trapper keepers and remembering the ones that I got and or ones that maybe my friends had or my sisters had. And, um, you know, the, there were these these like globular 80s abstractions that were, were particularly like reminded me of like a middle school time period or like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which was not like my favorite period of my life. Um so I do remember picking out your trapper keeper started as a rite of passage into finally being old enough to need a trapper keeper at school age. And I'm the youngest of three girls. So I was really excited when it was finally on my school list, which was probably middle school, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, but I also remember each year you needed a new one. So picking out your trapper keeper was kind of, you know, a form of identity. It was how you defined yourself that year. Um, based on what they they offered in Wisconsin, which was not <laughs> which was not always the best selection. Right, right. Um, do you remember the state your trapper keeper was in at the end of the school year? Oh, it was trashed. It was trashed. They yes. didn't hold up. They didn't hold they up. They didn't. Like because there was that heat sealed seam that was always ripping. You remember that? Mm -hmm, and the edges mm -hmm, also mm -hmm. it was like a plastic seam and those would start ripping too so yeah every year you'd have to replace it get one get a new one so aaron mccarthy came out with a story at mental floss in 2017 that is probably the most definitive history of the trapper keeper available <laughs> she <laughs> she tracked down all the key players and got interviews to really understand how the trapper keeper came to be so most of my information is actually pulled from this article which is very extensive and I amended it, but you can find the link for this or anything else that we talk about in our show notes at the department.world. If you want to read the whole article, <laughs> uh, which, like I said, it's very long. Um, so the trapper keeper from mead, I mean, I know you remember that logo because we mm -hmm. stared at it all day long all day. is all day with like the curved M. Um, it's the brainchild of E Bryant Crutchfield. Fantastic name. Crutchfield was a very innovative product developer back in the day and used trend and market research as well as data and consumer insight to strategically create product. Uh, you don't really see this level of development except when you're at a large brand that has a full R&D department, which Mead had. So many products take years to develop. 
Um, and this just goes to show the importance of tons of research to produce a successful product. You know, Crutchfold told Aaron from Mental Floss, the Trapper Keeper was no accident. It was the most scientific and pragmatically planned product ever in the industry, in that industry, in mm-hmm. that industry, um, uh, the school supply industry, <laughs> essentially. Um, the Trapper Keeper itself was developed with a mastery of innovation, design, purpose, end use, and the cu- customer in mind. And the Trapper Keeper was the first of its kind to approach school supplies with such a high development time and practice. Brightly colored, thoughtfully developed, trend forward, and uh, particularly functional, the Trapper Keeper took the school supply industry by storm, unlike anything anyone has ever seen before in that category. <laughs> I mean, I believe it. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, everyone, every kid had it, you know? Mm-hmm. So Mead sold over $100 million of the folders and notebooks a year. To date, more than 75 million Trapper Keepers have flown off the shelves. The product became a cultural phenomenon and has been referenced on many TV shows, including South Park, Family Guy, Dawson's Creek, Stranger (laughs) Things, and Full House. Uh, So it all starts back in 1972. Crutchfield was at Mead as the director of New Ventures, and as such did a lot of trend forecasting in the marketplace. He conducted some research on education and student needs with someone over at Harvard to find out that there would soon be more students per classroom in the coming years, and those students would be taking more classes. They also had less lockers available, and those lockers were just a lot smaller you know, because there was just more people. So uh, a few years later, during some more of his trend crunching, Crutchfield found that the sales of folders or portfolios, as Trapper Keeper calls them, were increasing at 30% a year. So he kind of remembers that Harvard study that he did a few years back and a light bulb went off. You can't take six 150 page notebooks around with you and you can't interchange them since people were using more portfolios. There was a white space in the market for a tool or a notebook that would hold a bunch of folders for each class. It grew to having the folders have the wildly unpopular at the time vertical pockets versus the horizontal pockets, because when you close up the papers, they're trapped inside, even if the notebook gets turned upside down. There's a very, very long explanation about this that I kind of just (laughs) cut down. I mean, that is innovative, though, because- Yeah. I can remember my post Trapper Keeper life losing papers all the time. Just falling out. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, so the final proto had folders with angled pockets that included tiny multiplication tables, weight conversions, and rulers on them, which actually were uh, a bit of a problem with teachers um, that mm-hmm. kind of wanted to ban those because, you know, people could reference them for tests. Mm -hmm. Um, And he finished it off by adding in a three ring binder that held those portfolios and closed with a flap. So students could drop the notebook and the contents would stay securely in place over a, and this sounds so like 1970s over a lunchtime martini with his R and D manager. The name (laughs) was fun (laughs) calling the folders themselves, the trappers because they trapped the paper and the notebook, or really just a three-ringed binder, the Trapper Keeper. 
So he prototyped about five or six variations and was constantly talking to students and teachers for feedback, including his teenage kids, luckily enough that he had around, who allowed him access to real-time assignments, schoolwork, and even the lockers themselves. The original launch trapper included a PVC binder with plastic pinchless rings. They slid open to the side, uh, the side instead of snapping open, a clip that held a pad and a pencil and flap held firmly closed with a snap. Hmm. So the test market was in Wichita, Kansas. After producing and airing a TV commercial, the Trapper Keeper sold out immediately. Crutchfield proclaimed, this just might be the most fantastic product we've ever launched. I think it's really going to shake up the school supplies market. (laughs) (laughs) So they moved to national distribution in the summer of 1981 right in time for back to school. The folders came in three colors, red, blue, and green. I remember these specifically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the kids had six Trapper Keeper options at this launch, three solid colors and three designs. And those designs was a soccer, like it's like these these people playing soccer, a dog, a cat, and the Oregon coast, which (laughs) was... I know, really random, which were stock photos that Crutchfield bought from an agency. The Trappers had a suggested retail price of 29 cents each, while the Trapper Keepers had a suggested retail price of 485. And sales exploded. Kids literally fought for them in stores. Three Mm. years later, the snap was actually changed to the Velcro closure, which was a super, super cool material at the time. Mm -hmm. So... It was even more innovative. Yeah. So in 1988, seven years after they launched nationally, Mead introduced the designer series, which is what I remember the most. They partnered with a lot of local illustrators to make fashionable, funky, and sometimes psychedelic designs on the binders and folders that ran until 1995. They also partnered with Lisa Frank, who I'll get into in a minute, and a bunch of other pop culture favorites like Garfield and even Lamborghini. <laughs> Do you remember the kids walking around with like the cars? My brother had the Lamborghini one. I remember that very specifically. <laughs> it's like, well, you can't, you, can't, you can't own a Lamborghini, but you can have one on your Trapper Keeper. It's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> so by the mid-1990s, the Trapper Keeper actually really lost its favor. And I it took me a little while to dig in there and really dissect why that trend down happened and after doing some digging a lot of it was either outright just being banned from schools because they were too bulky or because they just didn't fit in lockers anymore and were so big that they damaged them when kids would try to close their lockers with the trapper keepers inside of them Um, or if they weren't actually just outright banned from the schools teachers themselves didn't want them in their classrooms anymore so they would write across their school supply lists no trapper keepers in 2001 the wall street journal spoke to those teachers who said and i quote they're so big they take up so much space they have so many compartments one of the teachers named man complained Some of the 12 by 10.4 inch binders, man said, opened out with flaps on either side, making them really unwieldy in already crowded classrooms. (laughs) 
<laughs> she says, you ask a student to take out a worksheet, and by the time they open all the sections out and find it, the trapper keeper has reached over to another person's desk. She says, veteran teachers know it often comes down to the desk size. The other big complaint is that somehow the multitude of folders and pockets in the Trapper Keeper make students less organized. The kids with Trapper Keepers tend to throw the papers in and don't organize and they can't find anything. A simple three ring binder with subject dividers is actually going to hold more. And I do remember just tossing stuff in any folder. Yeah. Totally. Just making a mess and like sometimes having to go through and like specifically reorganize everything in there from time to time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the funny part is that it it actually ended with the way it started. So it was made for reduced space and smaller lockers. And guess what? Those classrooms and those lockers got even smaller because there were more and more students. I mean, or in like a, what is it, a 15, 20 period time frame that just went astronomically higher so the track the trapper keeper just outgrew schools themselves um and additionally what was supposed to improve organization it just turned out was just causing more and more dysfunction and chaos (laughs) so sad Mm -hmm. i i mean on one hand a trapper keeper is just a bunch of plastic that you know will sit in the landfill forever you probably don't need it but I just remember so much the exciting feeling mm-hmm. of going to get your school supplies and setting it all up and like walking to school the first day with it, you yes. know. A brand I, new. Oh, so I – in fourth grade, I changed schools, which was not uncommon. And in fact, halfway through the school year, I changed schools again. But my grandma was like, okay, we're well, going to start at a new school. Let's go get you any trapper keeper and anything you want. And I got the – I'm I'm telling you, Kim, the most beautiful trapper keeper that had ever been made. It had a Pegasus on it. Snowing on a rainbow. Yes. Clouds. It was beautiful. Mm-hmm. When I walked into school that first day, I felt like very cool. Well, by the end of the day, my trapper keeper was missing. And I went home and my mom was like pissed, obviously. Like, how did I lose it? And I'm like, I don't know. I put it in my locker because we had these weird lockers in the hallway. But they didn't lock. It was very strange. They were really just more like a cubby, I guess, with the Mm -hmm. door. And she was really mad at me. And a couple days later, I was at school and I looked over and this girl had my trapper keeper and had cut all these holes in it and written dirty words all over it. Like, what? Yeah. And so I had to go to the teacher and be like, hey, that girl who I don't know because it's my first week here – stole my trapper keeper and it turned out that she in fact had her name was tanya and they oh made her God. give it back to me and my mom was like well you're not using that it's got curse words all over it <laughs> Wait, so, so she was using the trapper keeper as her own but she, yeah she stole it out of my locker and everybody in my class knew that i had this pegasus trapper keeper because everybody yeah. was like wow that is like the most beautiful one ever so she was yeah. like not a very smooth criminal to then keep not coming into class with me with it but she decided to like camouflage it by like shredding it and writing curse words all over it but it was like very clearly mine and it was like oh. now i had this arch nemesis at school oh. who i would have otherwise not noticed at all I remember her name was tanya and like for the whole school year i had to be like i guess tanya is my enemy you know i'm nine i have a mortal enemy now <laughs> and i remember the thing the thing i remember most about this girl tanya is that she had this amazing red faux leather, like Michael Jackson jacket 
wow. with like studs on it. Like it was very cool. And I always felt like, why would someone so cool want my Pegasus binder, you know? Yeah. Wait, so you got the binder back. Yes, but my mom was like, no, you can't use that. It's got like bitch and shit on it or something. I don't know. <laughs> Slut. I don't know. Bad words. What? So then what? Sorry, I need to know the end of the story. What? What did you do? Did you just get a new Trapper Keeper? My mom threw it out. Well, my mom was like, well, I'm not buying you a Trapper Keeper because you're irresponsible. And I was like, is it irresponsible if I was a victim of crime? It's not. That is a, that's a trend in, in your household. Jesus. I know. So so instead, my grandma took me out and oh. I got a new one that was not as good. It had cats on it, but it just wasn't like no, that, that Pegasus binder was beautiful. That would yeah. have been the be all and end all. I mean, yeah. I, I yeah. that's all I wanted. I mean, that's all I would wear. Like Ugh. the t-shirts with the Pegasus on it. Unicorn and Pegasus. Yeah. I mean, what a time to be a Pegasus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that actually um, helps me transition into the next conversation, which is about Lisa Frank. And that's also going to sidebar into the sticker mania as well. Um so Lisa Frank was undoubtedly cool in the 1990s. You know, her illustrations mirrored the trends in the zeitgeist of the day. She's credited for some of the popularity around the original unicorn trend that we are just talking about, which I, I do want to make sure that we do define the difference between unicorn and Pegasus, which I feel like people get very confused. <laughs> the unicorn is the one with the, with the horn and the Pegasus is the one with the, the, wing. with the wings. And, yes. they, and it's very rare to have a unicorn Pegasus as well. Right, right. I mean, it happens every once in a while that they will crossbreed, but generally. <laughs> and is this like was this like according to scientists or like this is this is according to to, to Kimberly Christensen, <laughs> <laughs> mystical horse adjacent animal specialist. Yes, yes. There's, there wasn't. I mean, they they do exist, but I do think that there's a lot of confusion there. But anyway, I just wanted to make sure that that, that gets called out. And I do think that a lot of people call unicorns when you see a Pegasus, they call me unicorn, and that always bothered me. As a kid. Uh, me too. Me too. It's like, you see, it's got wings and it doesn't have a horn. Why are you calling it a unicorn? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so she is credited for some of the popularity around the original unicorn trend and the neo-unicorn trend, which recaptured the hearts of millennials everywhere in 2016. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It did. It did. For some much needed escapism. Mm -hmm. The unicorn trend is described as a tendency to design and consume objects, clothing and food with a rainbowed and vibrant color palette. So it's not even about the actual mystical creature. It's really about the rainbow. Mm -hmm. um, and so many of the millennials embracing the trend in the last few years were waxing nostalgia about Lisa Frank, as well as other kind of strong 80s and 90s vibes. It came barreling back with lots of these Lisa Frank unicorn hair, mm -hmm. which was basically mm -hmm. rainbowed hair. And a lot of people would call it Lisa Frank hair. So they would have a hashtag called Lisa Frank hair. Um, other things that kind of, you know, that it coexisted or kind of were pulled off of this, this Lisa Frank hair craze that happened in 2016 were things like the unicorn Frappuccino, which was like a rainbowed Frappuccino from Starbucks. Um, there was a bunch of other rainbow things that were happening, which really kind of have died down. I think it's moved into tie dye mm -hmm. recently. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if rainbow will come back. Um, 
But anyway, so the Lisa Frank brand officially started in 1979. And Amanda, did you know that Spencer Gifts <laughs> were the first to put Lisa Frank in the spotlight? I mean, it makes sense to me because like I haven't been to a Spencer's Gifts in a long time, but <laughs> I do yeah. remember when I was in like third, fourth grade that Spencer's was really cool. Like everything yeah. in there was magical. Then it just turned into like penises and boobs yeah. and things. It got really dirty. Yeah, it got really dirty. But they used to be like, oh, do you want do you want those balls that go back and forth on your desk to like soothe you? Mm-hmm. Or those lights that make your hair stand on end or like a blinking light for your room or magnet toys and stuff. Like it was lava lamp. Yes, lava lamp. Exactly. Like it was lava just uh-huh. it was just stuff like that. And I do remember that they had Lisa Frank posters. Like I specifically yeah. remember that because that was like they had a huge thing where you would like page through the posters and then you'd have to match the number to the bin below and get it. And I mm-hmm. definitely got some unicorn posters there. You know, they gave uh, Lisa her first $1 million order. Wow. At the age of 25. Yeah, she was kind of the original girl boss. <laughs> um, in a lot of ways, actually, that we'll get into. In a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, at the height of Lisa Frank's popularity, her line of products, folders, pencil cases, erasers, trapper keepers, notebooks, and then of course the poster, um, made more than $60 million a year in sales by the nineties. Um, but at that time she really started out in just really small things like stickers and buttons. And, but think about that stickers and buttons and primarily stickers supported millions of dollars in sales even before she did trapper keeper and all those other periphery items it was just mostly stickers so i'm going to digress here for one moment when i dig into stickers and stickers were a huge business in the 1980s the subculture of collecting and trading stickers was like insanely Mm -hmm, phenomenally mm -hmm. important even to this day when i personally see stickers i get excited and i get hoardy oh my god because stickers that's what yeah yeah and they were like did you have at your mall like a sticker store because we did i mean it was small but it was only stickers it was like the i mean it was like a tiny store because how much space do you need for stickers and they had just like rolls and rolls of them on the walls that actually sounds like a paradise we had a store called jt puffins that was kind of like a small <laughs> gift store okay jt puffins and that was the only place that me and my sisters wanted to go and we would get um we would just get stickers and they had the rolls and rolls of stickers and we would go i mean i'd swear to god it was like monthly and you go and pick up the new stickers mm-hmm. um you know like I, I, it wasn't about candy it wasn't about anything it was about stickers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and like when um, i think about it like collecting stickers is like not expensive. It's not like devastating mm-hmm. for the environment. It's very wholesome. Like bring back sticker yeah. collecting. Like I mean, hoarding. Oh, that, that's what it really was. Did you have books for yours? Yes. It, it's the sticker album. And I, I knew I had friends that would like take the stickers off and put the stickers on their albums. Like take them no, off. Of, no. Like that just was absolutely mm-hmm. the biggest faux pas. Oh, totally not. In fact, I Horrified. was so against that that – my grandma bought me some like photo albums, the kinds with like yes. the plastic. Like, That's space. what I had. That's what I did mm-hmm. with mine too. And then they were always safe. They're always safe. Yeah. You would see those rogue people. I bet Tanya, I bet you Tanya had one of those <laughs> sticker books and she just put stickers. 
She was probably one of those people. I had friends who would just stick the stickers in the book. And now in retrospect, I'm like, well, I mean, what else were you going to do with them? But like at the time, that was horrific to me because even- You ruined it. Even if I had a scratch and sniff sticker, Mm -hmm. I would only let myself lightly scratch it occasionally. (laughs) Oh, so precious. So precious. In fact, I remember at one point a teacher gave me a pickle scented sticker and that was like the crown jewel of my scratch and sniff sticker. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I remember those. There was pickles. There was hot dogs. Lots of – and they weren't that – that well designed it usually had like one of those like smiles mm-hmm, that had, mm-hmm. at the end had like little like smiles on them you know it's like a smiles with like little, little cheek smiles totally very simple because it's all about the scent it was all about the scent and it was rare um yeah. the reason why you didn't stick them on things was because you traded them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you obviously wouldn't trade your 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 you know your pickle or whatever your, no, your the, the, no. the, the most the yeah the the most prized possession or anything but you would <laughs> trade, you'd trade other things um, or you'd purchase multiples and trade some of those you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had a sticker album all my sisters all my friends or really their friends um you know we were collecting trading stickers that was our top priority we'd like meet in neighborhoods like you said you just walk outside see if anyone was around bring bring your album. And potentially, you know, do some sticker trading. I don't think I was usually invited to the sticker trades. I think that was like my sisters were and I was always kind of left behind, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. I would look through my sticker album a lot. We also did collect erasers and those like plastic mm-hmm. charms. Do you remember those things? Yeah, I still have a bag of them somewhere in the mm-hmm. basement because I love them so much. Like little phones and things that were so cute. Yeah, 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 totally. So in 1984, People Magazine declared in an article about sticker mania – America is getting stuck up with estimated <laughs> with estimated industry-wide sales of a billion stick-ons priced at five cents to five dollars, totaling as much as five hundred million dollars in sales in nineteen eighty. Wow, that is a lot of stickers, and that's like mm-hmm. about ten to twelve million dollars today. Yeah, of like five cents stickers, little stickers. <laughs> Yeah, it's the crazy. The sticker industry was booming for kids under 12 with new technology and innovative design driving the demand. We're talking hypercolor, mylar, scratch and sniff Barbies, which uh, reportedly smelled virginal. What does that mean? I think it's like either like cotton candy or like, yeah. like powder. I feel like I remember having some. Me too. Me too. And I feel like it was sort of like cotton candy. I can picture the stickers. Yeah. I can I can picture them. I yeah, there's actually a couple of them. There was like puffy ones, there was flat ones, there's scratch and stuff. There was a bunch. Barbie had a big <laughs> a big foot in, yeah. in in the sticker game. I um, mean, it was a natural fit, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was a natural fit. It's perfect. So my sisters and I just stayed local with the neighborhood kids. But if you were lucky enough and probably lived in larger cities, there was like these full blown conventions that you could go to to sell stickers. It was huge. Wow. I mean, there was magazines, there was everything. But the choice ones were the puffies, mm-hmm. foam filled, vinyl coated models. A little bit more expensive. Googlies, which was stickers with roll around eyes. Mm-hmm. And the piece, the resistance was the liquid crystal. 
Oh, yeah. The sticker filled with a chemical Mm -hmm. that causes them to change color when rubbed. I remember these things. These were amazing. Me too. Also, once again, would not rub them that often no. because I didn't know how if they would wear out. Yeah. So I was very concerned. <laughs> <laughs> so the article says that the trend started in California in 1980 with some custom hearts as stickers for Valentine's Day that were unavailable in the market and just took off from there. So I actually looked into that further. And there's this woman that started it all and still has a sticker company called Mrs. Grossman Stickers. On her website, the story reads as, when a close friend and owner of a popular Sausalito gift store asked Andrea for some red hearts to stick on gift wrap for Valentine's Day, Andrea couldn't find any supplier who made such a thing. So Andrea cut a simple, elegant heart out of a black construction paper, sent it to a label printer and forgot all about it. A few weeks later, a large carton arrived at her front door. When Andrea opened the box, she was stunned. Thousands of red hearts had not been printed on flat sheets like she had requested, but had mistakenly been printed on rolls like ribbons. They were breathtaking. Andrea immediately realized this dazzling mistake could turn into something pretty interesting. These gorgeous heart stickers could be more than something to decorate a product. They just might be the product itself. When the rolls of red hearts hit the tiny Sausalito shop, customers went wild. Instead of buying one, they were buying 10 or 20 and cutting them off rolls like ribbons. Andrea was amazed. These stickers were a huge, unexpected hit, and she knew she could be onto something big. Andrea designed nine more stickers and introduced Stickers by the Yard at a national stationery show. There was nothing in the market like it, and retailers, always looking for something fresh and new to increase sales, swamped Andrea with orders. Nobody had expected this huge response, and soon Andrea and her team were working night and day to keep up with the demand. The craze died down. Uh-huh. The craze died down by the end of the 1980s, but in the 1990s, with scrapbooking craze, they bumped back up. Mm-hmm. My mom was really into scrapbooking, so. You know, she's definitely into um, uh, Applebee's and scrapbooking. She's very trend forward. And I read an article about um, sticker trends from uh, 1-0 about Mrs. Grossman's legendary sticker company. And it's called The Last True Sticker Factory in America. It says that Japan is actually one of the most consistent in regard to sticker demand for the decades and accounts for 25% of Grossman's profits. So she even sells at places like Tokyo Hands, which is one of the coolest stores in Tokyo. Oh, ever, ever. Amazing. Yeah. It's like this, like, I mean, what is it, six or seven floors, kind of like a weird, cool, amazing department store. Stickers are still pretty active on subreddits and hashtag stickers is still kind of around. It's kind of back, but in a slightly different capacity. You know, a lot of Gen Z kids are kind of putting them stickers on laptops and hydro flasks to build more of an identity with daily products. Um, There's some suitcase stickers that are growing traction, but there's just nothing Nothing like the sticker trends of the case, which honestly really has, like I said, it like kind of changed my muscle memory and my upset. Like that obsession still exists to this day where I see a sticker and like there's just a fascination towards it. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. And I do feel like, I mean, stickers 
are not as popular here unless you're into scrapbooking, but it's, it is true that like if you're up on the kawaii scene, oh. like in Japan and Korea, stickers are a huge part of that still to this day. And they can get really pricey. Well, stickers started to slow down in the later 80s. And Lisa Frank really made a name for herself with the, this like following of preteen girls with her stickers. Everybody knew her. Everybody collected her. Like it was a big deal. So what better than to pivot into product that they needed like school supplies? So in 1987, she launched into school supplies to contradict the slowdown in sticker sales. And really, this is what the catalyst was to catapult her into fame and fortune. And there's <laughs> very little information about the rise of the company and how they really hit their mark. But there is an article in Hello Giggles from 2013 that her head designer of 15 years, Rodney Kurtz, who said the most popular products were, well, Anything with unicorns, kittens, puppies, or horses were always popular. As far as products, it kind of varied over the years. When I first started, it was stickers, then school folders, trapper keepers, then crafts got really big for a while. I didn't even know that they had crafts. But then I have a feeling that stickers always and still are her most popular product, this designer says. Did you ever mm. have any of these craft things? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, apparently it's crazy craft kits, like Lisa Frank craft kits. You know what? Actually, okay, I think I did. I think I had some like paint by number things. Mm -hmm. And I have this very vague memory of these like Lisa Frank card kind of things that you would stitch together with yarn. Oh, Although wow. I don't remember what they turned into. And then, there, of course, there were those like velvety posters yeah. That you would color in with markers. But yes. I, I do think like I have seen Lisa Frank kits at like Target in the kids craft section. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I can I believe that they're still out there. Okay. Okay. Well, the obsession over Lisa Frank is to this day still pretty rampant. You know, you read in the comment section on articles, you know, even like under Hello Giggles, and women are still talking about how they lived and breathed Lisa, mm -hmm. Lisa Frank. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Owned everything. There are people that are like, you know, avid, avid collectors when they were kids. And literally, if there was a product that came out with that Lisa Frank did, they owned it. So it was a lifestyle that lived only in merchandise. This wasn't a cartoon or a character with a personality, although they did have names. All the characters did have names. But being into Lisa Frank did define your aesthetic. Um, mm -hmm. Lisa has made quite the trend comeback, as I mentioned in 2016, with the unicorn trend coming back. You can find her illustrations popping up everywhere as this millennial nostalgia is hitting big time. Um, I think most of it's all licensed now. Like I don't think she does anything Mm -hmm. um, in-house um, and you could go to lisa frank's official store which is extremely weird and they sell apparel for adults and kids what? and some mugs yeah i want to go it's really but okay so all they do is sell some kind of poorly merchandised products like just t-shirts and mugs and that's it but and then the only image that they have is an old shot from a campaign with mila kunis back in the 90s wearing a sweatshirt ah. that they don't sell I kind of can remember this. Okay, but that is really mm -hmm. weird. I, th I mean, I know you're going to get into it, but yeah. the impression I have of Lisa Frank is it's a hot mess. It's a probably hot mess. messier than Nasty Gal. It is. It's much, much messier. <laughs> um, it, it, well, actually, and like that's kind of 
the the last part about this I did kind of want to get into um, is, uh, and this is not about trends, but there is this fascinating, scandalous call-out article that Amanda was kind of referencing in 2013, kind of around that same time as, as the Hello Giggles uh, mm-hmm. article, um, from Jezebel by Tracy Egan Morrissey called Inside the Rainbow Gulag, the Technicolor Rise and Fall of Lisa Frank, with the subtext, The Ugly Business of Being Cute. And it is an amazing article. I've read it at least 10 times. And, you know, just for the sake of this podcast not being a million um, a million hours long, I did really amend this, but I will put this in the show notes as well. And Amanda, if you feel like I'm missing some key aspects, we could definitely make sure to throw it in there. But I, yeah, I kind of narrowed it down. Um Okay, so Frank is really elusive. There are apparently only two pictures of her. Her employees say that the reason was because of some illusions of grandeur, as well as some potentially debilitating obsessions towards aging and weight. And this is kind of where the story gets weirder. So the headquarters were in Tucson. I think they still have like a place in Tucson, um, but not as big, obviously. And the company grew in the 80s and the 90s, and it really grew on mismanaged bones, making Lisa (laughs) Frank a notoriously horrible place to work in Tucson. Every person, this is a quote, every person who ever worked there seems to have a case of PTSD from it. Rainbow Gulag is really an apt description. So that's what someone Mm -hmm. had said about this. Yeah, yeah. So it turns out in the 90s, Frank married one of the designers who sort of end up taking over. Frank stepped back to raise their kids and this like terrible, toxic nightmare subculture just went rampant under this guy. So this article shares horror story after horror story about just insane abuse. Also, it turns out there was rampant cocaine abuse. Yeah, that's the thing that like really (laughs) sticks with me. Like there was, and then you're like, yeah, it adds up. Like there was so much cocaine. Yeah. Um, So pretty much the entire time the brand was popular, rampant cocaine abuse um, between, you know, the the husband, but also I think Frank is Lisa Frank is also being called out for for quite a bit of cocaine abuse as well. Um, And to the point that an employee would pick up an unmarked package of cocaine weekly, as well as Viagra and porn. This guy was a nightmare. Um, So reading from this Jezebel article says, while there was an emphasis on productivity, the rules that were implemented seemed counterproductive to a creative environment. According to former employees, the office was a place of silence and coworkers were not allowed to speak to one another. The management secretly and illegally recorded phone calls, an inner office bi-monthly publication called Frankly speaking, <laughs> informed employees they were to behave um, or how they were to behave, particularly regarding how they were expected to interact with their boss, CEO, this is the husband, James Green. Memos were frequently circulated with new, increasingly restrictive company policies. No visitors, including family members, were allowed. The penalty for any violations ranged from verbal abuse to name-calling to screaming to automatic termination to even more bizarre restrictions. 
One time after discovering that someone had left the office 10 minutes early, an enraged Green instructed the warehouse manager to put chains and padlocks on the downstairs doors. So, and I quote, the staff can't escape. Oh, good Lord. And I mean, Amanda, it frankly speaking, that sounds like a cult <laughs> or a sweatshop. Turnover was insanely high. And Obviously, there was a ton of abuses happening. One of the employees commented on how ironic it was that there were unicorns and rainbows everywhere. There was uh, apparently also um, he wouldn't he didn't remember the employees' names. He refused to just rem- like learn them, so he would call people just nicknames, just oh. like really derogatory nicknames as well. Um, and eventually, there was a bitter divorce. Uh, in the aughts after Frank found out that he was cheating on her with his assistant. So, you know, just tons of toxic work and personal life and cocaine mixed in. And like I said, if you want to read, read it, you know, the link will be in our, um, on our website. Uh, So right now, you know, Frank pretty much license all of her work out. She does still produce things um, like, you know, content, um, her, her illustrations, but she doesn't actually produce anything inside herself anymore. It's like she had massive factories in Tucson. Um, you'll see a few things here and there, and it just kind of goes in, goes out. I think she partnered with like hotels.com for mm-hmm. a little bit with this, this like Lisa Frank room where you could sleep in. Like, it's like your old childhood bedroom that you never had, you know, stuff like that. Um, but I think that trend is kind of out again. So I'm not really sure what she's up to. Yeah. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. I think she does so much licensing to like random people. Like I remember finding all these Lisa Frank calendars at the Dollar Tree. Yes. There was a ton of, yeah, really just like watered the brand down. Like obviously going to the Dollar Tree is just, you know, maybe you just need some cash. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's sad. It's so sad because I mean mm-hmm. her her art inspired a whole generation of artists, you know? It did. Yeah, absolutely. Like people at our age, yeah. Hold on. Before we transition into my section, I got to open my Bud Light oh. Seltzer. All right. Now, continuing on with our slumber party theme. You can't have a slumber party without games, right? Or else I guess you could watch movies, but it doesn't sound as fun. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know about you, Cam, but I am just going to say that there are plenty of amazing slumber party games that are free, like MASH, mm-hmm. one of the best games ever invented, Truth or Dare, um, those like cootie catchers, you know, that would like tell your fortune. Oh, cootie catchers. You know, they were called cootie catchers? They were called cootie catchers, yeah. Yeah, that's the technical term for them. I think we called them fortune tellers. <laughs> well, they did tell your fortune, so it makes sense. Co- cootie cat, okay. But despite that, the industry was like, hey, we're all about making all the money we can off of tween girls now, so we're going to we're gonna make some games mm-hmm. for slumber parties. I remember. I remember playing some of these. Yes, yes, for sure. So – I was worried that I was like the only spooky girl with spooky friends, but it turns out Kim was too, so I don't feel embarrassed Mm -hmm, here. mm -hmm. The Ouija board was like a key component of any slumber party. Like you had to have it. And sometimes it would result in everybody being really scared and crying and being convinced that there were like murderers or ghosts outside. (laughs) And other times 
it would just start fights because someone thought someone was scamming someone by moving the thing, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if you're unfamiliar with the Ouija board, which could happen, uh, probably means you didn't get to go to any good slumber parties, but it's also known as a spirit board or a talking board, and it's a flat board, you know, marked with the letters of the alphabet, the numbers zero through nine, the words yes, no, and sometimes depending on the brand you have, hello and goodbye. And then there's like symbols and graphics on it. And you use this thing called a planchette, which is a like heart-shaped piece of wood or plastic that has like a little window in it usually. It has like a pointy end that's supposed to be sort of like the indicator like when it lands on something. People who are playing with the Ouija board will put their fingers on the planchette. You need at least two people to do this. And ostensibly, spirits move the planchette around the board to spell out words. Spirits supposedly talk to you through the board, (laughs) right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, the Ouija board emerged in the late 19th century as a natural evolution of it's just like a really spiritual time. In the in the eighteen hundreds, um, and it wasn't like spooky or satanic to talk to spirits. It was just very natural because you have to put yourself back in that place. Basically, mm-hmm. many people had lost so many loved ones during the Civil War. You know, so seances and mediums were just commonplace. Like you have to remember, like someone in your family might go off to fight the Civil War, and you might literally never hear from them ever again right? It's not like Mm -hmm. we had the USPS and email and texts and whatnot. So you wouldn't even know what had happened to your relative. So seances and mediums were like just a big deal, a very normal thing to have a few of your friends over and try to contact your lost loved ones. Very normal. Mm -hmm. But it was also kind of like inconvenient because at that point – There were only two major ways to communicate with the spirit world when you were having like a seance or something. One was that you could knock and like one knock would be yes and two would be no or vice versa, whatever you decided. Or you could do a thing where you would just say the letters of the alphabet until like the lights blinked or something and then someone would write that letter down and you would just keep going. So it's very – very tedious process. And so people were like, can we just like speed this up a little bit? Yeah. Like we're sitting here, you're like A, B, C, D, yeah. taking forever. So, <laughs> All night so, long just to spell a sentence. Totally. So this Ouija board was like a major technological leap mm-hmm. for all the spiritualists of the world. Um, and it was pretty popular. Like it was really seen as this like miracle device and it wasn't a toy. You know, it was like a real thing that you would buy at the real store as an adult and, you know, other adults would use. In 1966, the Parker brothers bought the Ouija board and rather than like turning it into a game, I mean, I know eventually Ouija boards became a game, but they were not yet. They kept its original like spooky spiritual vibe. Like I want to say – the original Ouija boards came in a box that said that they had been made in Salem, Massachusetts. Oh, my gosh. You know? Yeah. And so I don't know if the Parker brothers knew this or not, but this was a really great time and a super smart decision for them to buy the Ouija board because the New Age movement was starting to form in the mid to late 60s, and the public was more interested in spiritualism and the occult than they had been since the previous century. 
1967, so that's the year after Parker Brothers bought Ouija, the game outsold Monopoly, which for years was like their bread and butter. Like nothing could come close. You know, they were constantly trying to say like, what's the next Monopoly? Well, the good news is Monopoly is still going strong. But this was the first time that had happened. Uh, In the 70s, this is where we start to get into the era of like Ouija boards or maybe like satanic or evil or like – I had cousins who were not allowed to use a Ouija board because their parents were very Christian. Yeah, absolutely. There were a lot of movies and books in which Ouija boards did scary things. But by the 80s, it was like the slumber party activity. And advertisements from the 80s and 90s specifically targeted kids directly. Like there was one early 90s commercial that shows a group of boys, which – I don't want to be sexist, but I've only ever played Ouija with a group of girls, so it sounds shocking. The boys would be asking the Ouija board questions like, will I ever be tall enough to slam dunk? Like, I remember this so clearly. I I would always laugh at it. And will my parents let me go to the concert? And there would be like super zany, not at all spooky music (laughs) playing in the background. It worked though. So Hasbro – acquired the rights to the game when it absorbed Parker Brothers in 1991. And they just, like, didn't even prioritize Ouija anymore. Like, it kind of just sold itself at that point. So there were no more commercials for a really long time. One of the really cool things about Ouija boards, which I had not thought of until I sat down to work on this, is that you can't really modernize them or digitize them. Like, they are what they are. So they remain this, like, very basic analog thing. Although, once again, back in, like, 1890, this was, like, a huge leap forward. Yeah, yeah. So Hasbro hasn't really done that much with the Ouija board over the years, whereas they've totally – I mean, think of all the versions of Monopoly that are out there, for example, right? They – did a glow-in-the-dark version that ran for a really long time. I actually have one somewhere in this house. (laughs) They tried in, like, around 2010 a pink version for girls. And uh, it made Christian parents, like, lose their shit and boycott Toys R Us. Yeah. So that was pulled from the shelves. But otherwise, like, the game hasn't changed. It really hasn't. The whole thing is – it looks like it's the original. Well, not – Obviously not the original, but it's got like the old timey everything to it. Yeah. And there isn't like a blanding version of it yet. Yeah. Although I think it might look really cool in like a minimalist Helvetica version. Oh, Amanda, that seems like a really good product line. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Before it's too late in like a, you know, a nice millennial pink background. Mm -hmm. Mitch Horowitz wrote this amazing book called Occult America. And he says, quote, It really is the one and only object from the age of spiritualism that's still part of American life. Ask most people, have you attended a seance? And you'll get looked at funny. But if you ask them, have you played with the Ouija board? And most people will say, oh, yes, I had a scary experience. Or my kid had a scary experience with something of that nature. It's not Mm -hmm. too far off from asking someone if they've been to a seance. It just happens to be product-based. And I think that's really interesting because, yeah. A seance, people are like, oh, what are you, like, a kooky ghost person or something? I don't know. But, Mm -hmm. like, a Ouija board, oh, no, you're just someone who grew up in the United States at a certain time, right? Yes, and has been to a slumber party any time in your life. Totally, totally. So the thing about the Ouija board is, like, how 
does it work? Because once again, it always starts a lot of fights that someone's pushing it, right? And trying to control the game, which I'm sure happens. Uh, or that like, you know, maybe there really are ghosts and you get really scared. So what, how does this work? Well, there's, scientists have looked into this. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's been long enough. It's been know, long enough, right? Years. Right. Yeah. And it's a mistake. There's this mysterious mechanism that actually starts in your brain that powers the Ouija board, and it's called the ideomotor effect. And it's a basically a way that your body and your brain talk to one another without you being involved. I know that sounds kind of kind of weird, yeah. but it's the ideomotor effect is an example of unconscious involuntary physical movement. Another example of that is like when you're falling asleep and you jerk yourself awake, mm -hmm. your brain is signaling your body to move without your actual conscious awareness. The obvious difference is that the ideomotor effect happens when you're awake. So the reflexive movements you make are much smaller. When we're talking about a Ouija board, your brain, this is so fascinating to me, mm -hmm. may unconsciously create images and memories when you ask the board questions, but you yourself are not aware of it. And so your body responds to these sort of like secret messages, these images oh. and these words, and moves the planchette around. Research has determined that the ideomotor effect is closely tied to subconscious awareness. So the less you are aware of moving the planchette, the more it moves. The less control you think you have because you've surrendered, you know, to the spirit world, the more opportunity your subconscious mind has to control your movements. I think that is so fascinating. And like scientists are finding that actually Ouija boards are a really great way to communicate with people who may be having other communication issues and like in terms of like verbally or like writing, you know, like if they can't communicate that way, uh -huh. sometimes they can communicate with them using the Ouija board. It also, I, I was, this was really hard for me to wrap my brain around, but basically they think that using a Ouija board with a patient is a good way to see if Alzheimer's disease is settling oh. in because oh. somehow that relates to the way your self, your subconscious communicates with your body. It was really fascinating to me, but like That's super fascinating. There are tons of scientists all over the place right now who are doing research with Ouija boards. Fascinating. Well, I I will say, you know, um, I did date someone who studied demonology um, when he was in college, mm -hmm. um, theology and demonology. Wow. And um, the the Ouija board is something that is very um, uh, it's a it's a very harmful piece that can basically open doors for mm -hmm. demons to come through. Yeah, or your subconscious, right? Or your subconscious. So so you could either be subconsciously doing something, or it's the demons talking through you. Interesting. And that's that's his theory. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it. I have to say, I've had a lot of times playing Ouija board with my friends that have been really scary, <laughs> like mm. when I was a kid. So, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. So, the next group of slumber party games are not spooky at all, but they were super girl focused, <laughs> but like in a really narrow, heteronormative, super sexist version of girls and like what they should enjoy doing. 
there was this like rash of teenage girl themed games in which boys talking on the phone, dancing, having parties, and all the other girlish concerns are central themes. Like games the about tropes. Yeah. Games about girl tropes, basically. Uh-huh. So first off is a mob madness. Do you remember this one? I don't remember this one, no. So I wanted this game so badly. I saw the commercials <laughs> on television. It was one of the first board games that had a I mean, it is technically true, a computer in it, a very basic computer, but it was very groundbreaking for the time. And I was talking about it with someone else today who was like, I remember that game being very expensive. And I remember that too. I wanted it. My mom was like, no, that game looks stupid. (laughs) So I didn't get it. (laughs) But my friend Jessica got it because her parents didn't care if it was stupid. We were all excited. We're like, oh my God, we're going to have a slumber party just to play Mall Madness. We mm-hmm. all get there. We play it. Guess what? It's stupid. <gasps> no. So, Mall Madness hit the scene in 1988, which seems like was a huge year for these girl games because almost all the g- games I'm going to talk about today came from that year. Interesting. Is it? It was it all the same uh, companies that made them, or was it all different companies? It was. It was like this. There were only a couple games that I mean, a couple companies that were really leading like the game industry at that point, like Parker Brothers being one of them, mm-hmm. um, and Milton Bradley, I believe, being the other. And the slogan for Mall Madness in the commercial, which you can watch the commercials for all these games on our website. I we have saved all the links, and we'll share them with you. Mm-hmm. The slogan was Mall Madness. It's the mall with it all. I don't even know what that means. And the commercial was like it was it would go back and forth between girls actually shopping at a mall in amazing outfits and then playing yeah. this game at home. The game board <laughs> itself. It's a full lifestyle. Full lifestyle. It's like if you love the mall, have we got this for you? So the game board was like a two-story mall with a speaker credit card machine in the center. That was the computer. Each player would be given cash and a credit card. And the names of the credit cards are really funny. I remember this being funny to me even at the time. Fast Cash, Quick Draw, Mega Money, and Easy oh, yeah. Money. I mean, these all sound like they have a really high APR. Yeah. It's like fast. <laughs> it's all about fast money. Yeah. It's, it's funny. very – I feel like already I have so many problems with this game. Like no wonder so many people have bad credit. The goal <laughs> of the game – and this is where it got kind of boring because the truth is like – it was fun to use the machine in the center, but the game itself was just really lackluster. Mm-hmm. The goal was to purchase six things from your shopping list. Like each person got a, a list of things they had to buy. And then you had to make it to the parking lot first. But like any game, you could land on a space that would be like, go back to the food court and then you'd be really far away or whatever. Oh, when it was mm. your turn and you got to a store, you'd have to slide your card and it would tell you how much what you had to buy was. Um, and sometimes there'd be a sale. You also couldn't run out of money. Um, It was just really, really boring. (laughs) And it was about buying shit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like – here, be a good consumer. And remember the um, I was I was when I was looking at the Trapper Keeper stuff. I sent you. There was like a Trapper Keeper game. Oh, that looks terrible. Also, looks so boring. But I think it's like a recent Trapper Keeper game where you're like you you have like homework assignments and you got to like store your homework assignments. And I was like, I said it to you, and you, you were like, that looks terrible. I'm like, I know it looks so stressful. It was, it was like basically about time management or something. It was so bizarre. Yes. And like, oh. 
I read an article while I was doing my research about like even today, even in 2020 when most people play games like online, uh, there are people out there who are solely focused on inventing board games. And I think the 80s was like the peak of this. Like mm-hmm. if you had a dream of a game, someone would make it for you. And so when I'm at thrift stores, I'll see some of the craziest games I've never heard of and they suck. <laughs> and I remember us getting games, you know, always at Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. The whole family can play a game. And some of them were so terrible that we would like never play it again. And every TV show or band that was big at that time had a game as well. Like I remember there was a Saved by the Bell game and my friend had yes. that. And it was boring. These games were not good. And it was, but that was like before video games were really. I guess no, there was Nintendo, right? Yeah, there was Nintendo, and I think Sega at that point. But like, you know, there was still this sort of like, I don't know, generational gap there, where it was like your parents wanted you to play board games. You know, it was like what you would do on vacation if it rained, or like what you would all do as a family on the holidays and stuff like that. Like we would have to have game nights like that too. But like I said, totally. most games were terrible at this point um the next group of games i'm going to talk about is like an entire empire built around a game called girl talk which oh, i i think i think i used to have this. i one. think you did you had to have this game was like ubiquitous everyone had it it was at mm-hmm. every slumber party like my sister did or something so i was watching the commercial for this too and it begins with a black and white shot of a guy but like a 13 year old <laughs> guy okay it's cute, right? He's really cute. He's got that floppy, have a floppy hair. Of course, of course. Like Zach, Zach from Save totally, the Totally, totally. He's standing mm-hmm. in front of his locker, I suppose, at the junior high school, and he says, Kelly's not goofy like the other girls. The commercial then cuts to a girl who's clucking up a storm and flapping her arms around it in a chicken dance. Ostensibly, Kelly may be goofy like all the other girls, I guess. Yeah, right? exactly. She says to the other players, I play to win. It's like this whole commercial is what? like guys saying things that they know about girls and then the girls playing this game and being wrong. Like, like so-and-so would never kiss and tell. And then there she is like, let me tell you all about my first kiss. It's the, that marketing, uh, sorry, like that marketing angle, like – and we loved it. We, we, we all wanted, wanted it. it. We yeah, wanted yeah. We were it. like, this is how we mm-hmm. like assert our independence and how we're growing up. Mm-hmm. And like, of course, we are crazy about boys. Even if you weren't, you had to like get in that mindset and play along. So, right. just mm-hmm. like Mall Madness, the original Girl Talk game busted out on the scene in 1988. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was the year that they were like, we're going to cash in on slumber parties. So. Girl Talk was invented by a woman named Catherine Rondeau, who I believe lives in Connecticut. She's basically made a career out of product for tween and teen girls, including a series of books, which I've never heard of, called Collectopia, that are like activity books. Mm-mm. She was a big part of the team behind the Polaroid iZone cameras. Do you remember those? They made the little tiny pictures and you would like pull them through and some of them were actually stickers. It was around like 2000. Very I had a Hello Kitty one and I still have some of the pictures. It actually took really good pictures. They were just really tiny. And she's also consulted with Hasbro, Mattel, Hallmark, Nickelodeon. She's been involved in a lot of what seemed to be mediocre games over the years. 
Okay. And so she's like the go-to she must for be. like must teen be. and tween trend. Totally. Totally. So the thing about Girl Talk, though, is it was basically truth or dare, mm-hmm. but with zit stickers that you I had to wear. Yes. Yeah. You had, to, you had to put those on when you wouldn't execute a truth or dare. It was like and red. It was like a red dot. Yes. Like yes. A red sticker. And the other thing I remembered about this is it was like kind of a complicated game because you – had to do these truth or dares, but you also had to collect a fortune card from each of the four areas, which I'll get into. But it was like a little bit more complicated than a regular truth or dare game. So the dares for this game could be like call a boy and tell him something gross, which does sound traumatic to me. Absolutely. Or, I, mean, I was like, I was like, who would do that? I would, I would not do I would that. I would die. be putting the sticker on my face. Yes. <laughs> Or dance like a chicken, which is easy. I remember doing that. Mm-hmm. There was one that was I saw. I was able to find some scans of some old cards. Talk without stopping for thirty seconds, which I can do anyway. So no easy win. <laughs> so I, most of this was more wholesome than the dares of regular truth and dare. Like I remember amongst my friends, truth or dare, the dares would get fucking crazy. It would mm-hmm. be like I remember once the dare I had to do was I had to take off all my clothes and mm-hmm. run around yes. my friend's house outside yes. and come back in. I feel like it was always just get naked. Always, always. I mean, you can only imagine like dads, dads at this time, would just like, just like oh, not dads, leave the, the bedroom. Just stay in the bedroom. <laughs> Don't totally leave no me. matter what. Cause you will see something. <laughs> because girls are going to be naked. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. Poor dads, poor dads. There were also some like weird dares. Like one of them was call your friend and convince her that the cutest boy in the class has called you. That is mean. I kind of remember this one and I think maybe I got it and I had to call someone who was like, why are you calling me? (laughs) And I'm like laughing the whole time. It was terrible. (sighs) The truths were a little bit more tame. They, They were like, tell me about your first kiss, that kind of stuff. That, that you're oftentimes too young to have actually experienced. I know. I mean, the other thing I will say is that this game, according to the box, was for ages 10 and up. So the, the messaging is all over the place from this game because the winner is the first player to collect a fortune card from each of the four areas. Get ready. These areas are like, wow, this is, this is so archaic. Career. Mm-hmm children marriage and special moments <laughs> what like this is so gross and sexist it's like hey hi so you're 10 mm-hmm. let's talk about children marriage and special moments oh my gosh so i did find some photos of some of the fortunes and they were insane are yes. you ready for example some of the marriage fortunes you will marry a man with the same initials as your favorite uncle what is that creepy? That is creepy. Or this one's even more disturbing. Are you ready? Although somehow makes sense in 2020. Mm-hmm. The man you marry will be wearing a mask when you first meet. <laughs> and it's but funny. In the 90s, that would be it's disturbing. disturbing. But it's funny because it's like, okay, how many, you know, hundreds of thousands of girls are getting this, you know? And it's just. <laughs> I know. I know. Okay. And how about children? You will give birth to identical twins five days after your 23rd birthday. Sounds terrible. Or 
the last digit in your phone number indicates how many sons you will have. That freaked me out because I remember my childhood phone number ended with an eight. Okay. Disgusting. Mine too. too. Okay. It's a lot lot of kids. That's your poor vagina, you know? I hope your dad's not listening to this. Anyway. I think think my mother edits it for him. Okay. Good, good, good. Okay. And then there was special moments. You will meet someone special in line at Disneyland. (laughs) And you will finally take your dream trip to blank on your 20th birthday. I think based on my reading that your fortunes only came true if you won the game. Hence, not so many people meeting someone special at Disneyland or having identical twins five days after their 21st birthday. You had to win the game for the fortunes to come true. That makes total sense. Great. Right, right. Glad you cleared that Otherwise, up. every I mean, oh. yeah, so yeah. many people will be now, at Disneyland just trying to meet someone. So life. just waiting, just trolling, mm-hmm. waiting around for to meet that person. <laughs> the game was so successful that it spun off into a travel edition for, I guess, playing on the go. But based on what I was able to read, first off, these games have almost disappeared from the internet, so there's not that much out there. But the few people who are really experts on the girl talk empire say that the travel edition was not very successful and it's very difficult to find Mm. one in 2020 do you think it's because everyone was just so embarrassed (laughs) so embarrassed (laughs) from the existence they're like that we must scrub the internet and all Uh, all existences of it and i would say that the original girl talk is the superior like you know Mm -hmm. most originals and then the sequel because it inspired a so many other sexist and lame spinoffs. Mm-hmm. The first one was Girl Talk Dateline. Uh, the commercial for this one could possibly make you vomit, <laughs> if only because of the tagline, which is, Girl Talk Dateline is a game about the two things girls like best, talking on the phone and boys. Oh, that is so insulting. It's so gross. <laughs> it's so gross. One of the most hilarious things about the commercial to me, actually, is that it's it continuously cuts to a girl talking on the phone and ostensibly this whole game is about talking on the phone, but there's an all caps disclaimer on one of the girls talking on the phone that says phone not used in game. (laughs) (laughs) really Like Like the phone doesn't come like the phone will not come with this game. And there's no phone. There's even a scene of someone in a phone booth talking on the phone. (laughs) In a phone There's no (laughs) – yes. There's no phones at all in this game, okay? I do do remember seeing a lot of this, um, like these ads and like this like apparent like boy craze and talking on the phone, talking to boys, which I never did or even thought about doing or had anyone to to talk to the phone on. But feeling like I was kind of like – like there was something wrong with me. Because that wasn't something that I really wanted to do, but it was like apparently the thing that every girl did and it, all the cool oh my God, girls my, did with the cool hair, you know? My friend Jill had her own phone extension in her room and so she was always on the phone from like the time she got home to school from school until she went to bed and she would call me <laughs> and literally what we would do is we would both put on the same radio station and talk about what we were hearing. <laughs> Because the like, phone, we culture. just saw each other all day at school. You yeah, know, yeah. Like, what are we gonna do? My mom would always be like, "I don't even know what you two talk about," yeah. and I'd be like, "You know, fair enough, <laughs> nothing." <laughs> yeah, you're right. Literally, phone culture was so 
it, it, so huge. It was huge, but you didn't talk about anything because so you had nothing to talk about. <laughs> I know, I know. It was so ridiculous. So this game, uh, Girl Talk Dateline, basically your goal was to match up friends, but not your actual friends. These were really just little tiles with profile photos of different boys and girls. You would match them up on dates, and we're going to share photos of these on the website because they are hilarious. Like, Kim was losing it over these. They're so good. And this game, I mean, God. Girl, yeah. I it's like the 90s. I know they were a long time ago, but like I swear to god this game feels like it was from like the 1890s because it was so heteronormative because you could only set up male female couples. In fact, something that people call out is the instructions for the game stated over and over again that girl cards can only be matched with boy cards. And the only way you could get these like phone conversations to happen, once again, there was not a phone. There was like a speaker in the middle of the game. Phone not used in game. Phone not used in game. (laughs) The only way these phone conversations could take place is if you put in a boy and a girl tile. Like there was no same sex Mm -hmm. dateline here. So to see if a boy and a girl were a romantic match – you would slide their cards into like a little speaker dock and wait to hear what a phone call between these two potential mates could sound like. But you're actually just hitting start and stop on the cassette player that is inside the speaker in the center. So it didn't actually matter who you matched at all. It just had to be a boy and a girl to make the tape play. So it was totally random based on where the tape was. So basically – there was no actual strategy for winning this game. It was like all a game of chance. And if you played it over and over again to the end and just kept restarting it, you knew it would happen. Yeah. Yeah. It was boring. You'd be like, oh, well, the last time this played through, I remember this happened. Yeah. It was like, it just, it had such a short lifespan, this game. The boy girl tiles were so cheesy and they just reinforced like the stalest gender roles. I mean, no no wonder so many of us are a mess now, you know? Mm-hmm. For, here's here's some of the people you might meet in this game. Stacy, she loves talking on the phone and hates book reports. <laughs> Allison hates spiders and scary movies, but she sure loves cheerleading. Oh, my God. Jessica loves daydreaming and slumber parties and hates surprises. Yeah. Uh, yeah, surprises are the worst. The worst. The smartest girl and Kim's favorite, Gert. She loves <laughs> she loves Latin and algebra, but hates gym class and rock music. She was also- she's supposed to be the loser, also. Yes. By the way, and she was the nerdiest, and she wore glasses. You know, the only one. The boys were even worse. There was Brad that loved surfing and James Dean, but hated gossip. Oh my god, He's, I, that's like full clueless. I know. It really is. It really is. Eric likes water skiing but hates the mall. Oh. Also, I know. Everybody in this game is white. Everybody. This seems to be a game for white people. I mean, all of these games kind of worry. Even Girl Talk, you know, the kids you would see in the advertisements and on the boxes and whatnot, they were all white, right? Mm -hmm. Now, another game was called Girl Talk Secret Diary. I think this game came out around the same time as the others, but I couldn't find a ton of info, and the commercial was really weird. 
It referred to a boy named Myron, which I'm sorry. That seems very unlikely. Yeah, Myron is that's like a that's a that's a, that's like a, a granddad name. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was really, really weird. The commercial was a little confusing, which okay, I'm sorry it was. <laughs> you know. I think Myron might be the little brother of one of the people playing the game, mm-hmm. and she's writing about him in her diary. I have no idea. Basically, the game premise, I copied this all from the one website I could find that is like a database of all games ever. Write down one secret about yourself and hide it in the personal and confidential envelope until the end of this game. Choose any of the any day of the year, look it up in the diary, and read that page out loud. Then write down your answer to the diary question. Other players guess how you answered. Win calendar cards for correctly predicting each other's answers. Collect all 12 to win the game. But here, here's why you want to win. The winner gets to read all the secrets in the personal and confidential envelopes. Oh, God. Is that <laughs> fucked up? Yeah, it's, it's fucked. It is fucked up. You know, it reminded me of the story that happened to Dylan in elementary school that I was really pissed about where she was on the bus. It was like one of the only times she ever rode the bus to school. And this girl who was like supposedly her best friend on the bus, but like not her best friend in life, just on the bus. uh, She said, hey, this is a notebook that is for secrets. Write in here who you secretly have a crush on and it will be a secret forever. And then Dylan did. And then the girl read it to everyone on the bus. Oh. And Dylan told me that story, and I was like, that girl is a bitch. That, that girl is a bitch. And she was like, Mom, I can't believe you said that word. I'm like, trust me, she's going to be that way her whole life. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> she's a Tanya. She's her Tanya. That's right. Uh-huh. There was also a Girl Talk CD-ROM game. Uh, uh, I couldn't yeah. find any info about it anywhere not even a commercial which is so sad i also like how are you playing this cd rom game with other people and remember cd rom true yes (laughs) yes yes i actually i think i had um where in the world is carmen san diego cd yes yes it was a good game it was so it was for you had to like you had to know your shit or yeah. like, you had to like research it really quickly. Yeah, yeah. It was really, really good. And so the Girl Talk, I mean, and Mall Madness both spawned so many imitators. There were multiple other games about dates and calling people on the phone to be your date. Um, a lot <laughs> of these games would have this like technological aspect in the center that required batteries, but they were all – just so stupid. Like there was another one. I think it was called Dream Date. Maybe it was called – I don't know. It was something like that. And basically there was someone that was your dream date. And to find out, you had to call every guy that the phone could call until you got the right one. Like the other ones would give you hints. It was sort of like Clue but for dating. <laughs> Once again, this game was for 10-year-olds. Oh. Yeah. I mean just oh. – just all kinds of dumb stuff like that. <laughs> Did you ever call boys on the phone? No. I mean, okay. Over? My friend Shannon and I in 10th grade, we were too old for this, but we we were like the champions of calling boys' houses and hanging up. Like that was <gasps> our thing. 
Uh-huh. Because we would get too excited or we would like – there was – this is so random, but there was this street near our school. It was in like a subdivision. There was a subdivision where all the streets were named after the original developer's daughters. And one of the streets was called Steffi Drive. Uh-huh. And for reasons that I don't know or understand even now, all the cutest boys that we knew lived on Steffi Drive. And so if we were after school for something, like, you know, like play practice or something, we would look for an excuse to leave school just to walk down Steffi Drive just in case we saw any of these boys. And then we would go back to school. Like we were boy crazy. Yeah. I can't it sound it that sounds like but it also seems like it's it's the boy craziness kind of gets fueled by this kind of stuff. You know? <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Like obsessions and the clear like actual stalking and calling and hanging up like like weird inappropriate behaviors. Yeah. I mean, well, I had this um phone. It was a clueless phone. I got Ooh. it actually I think I was in high school when I got it. And it was kind of more of a joke thing. Right. But it, it was meant to be for younger girls like this. Um, and my sister and I bought it at like a Target. And it um, had this headset and a, like a little like um, plastic piece. And you could change the tone of your voice when you called someone. So you could talk to them and it would either, either be high and flirty or low and sultry. But actually it sounded Wait, what? like – Yes, but it changed like the frequency. So you'd either sound extremely demonic and terrifying <laughs> or like like a mini mouse. Oh, which my was, God. And then, and then it had these like buttons that you could press and um, it would be like it, you could press it and say as if or <laughs> – why yeah yeah because it was it was a clueless phone so it was like all like her isms you would say say, and it was like and it was like a little recording and then there was this one (laughs) this one thing that drove my father nuts and he couldn't hear very well so he was always really confused so if you were on the phone talking to someone and he would pick up or someone would pick up it would be like someone's listening but it would say it to everyone <laughs> and so my dad would always be like what what is that <laughs> oh kimmy kimmy are you on the phone and you'd be like dad i'm on the phone and then you'd be like oh okay and then hang up and then he'd go safe to talk <laughs> and then you go you press this button and you go whatever <laughs> So it was like a hilarious tool to terrorize people with. But if you actually used it to call boys with your low and sultry voice, <laughs> it was horrifying. Oh, I want one of these phones so badly. I feel like Dustin could like record a whole album with one. You, oh, you could. It was – I, I would have people over and my friends and we would prank call other friends <laughs> and scare the shit out of them. Oh my god, I bet. I bet. That you can is... still find that on uh, – you can find them on eBay for like 20 bucks. The only landline oh. on our property is in this shed out behind the garage because Amish people can't have a phone oh. in their house. So I have to go out to the shed <laughs> to <use> my clue. <laughs> and like it's an SF. What? Ever. Oh, there was another one. I forget what the other it was. There was three buttons, and it, I mean, they were all kind of similar. But like I said, it has this headset that was meant to fit 
like a teenager, like a preteen. Uh-huh. Like it's it didn't fit on a it didn't fit on my ear. Um, so your your head had to be smaller for it to fit. And I was just like, who are these these kids calling? Like <laughs> like this is not a good product. I just like feel like the eighties and nineties and even the early aughts to a certain extent were like the golden era of tween girl merchandise. And I don't yeah. feel like you see it in the same way now. I think that the yeah, I, I don't I don't think anyone would let it in their house now. No, no. imagine so imagine buying your child this dream date, dream line game and like, oh Gert. Exactly. And with Gert. And but Gert was like me. And I was like, I'm none of these girls. <laughs> More like Gert. Oh, I'm definitely Gert, except I like rock music. I mean, these- except I like rock music. Yeah, exactly. I did not like gym class though. <laughs> no, I hated gym class. I could. That's how oh, I related I- to her. <laughs> Stacy doesn't. Stacy hates greasy hair. Oh gosh. <laughs> oh, Jamie hates snobs and zits. Well, Tanya loves the beach and biology. I mean, Tanya also loves your trapper keeper. <laughs> but she hates dieting, according to us. Like, don't invite her to your slumber party with the weigh-in. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, I guess that's all we have to talk about today. Uh, yeah. Thanks for yeah. thanks for joining us. Yeah. <laughs> as we went down memory lane. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it as much as, as we did. Because I – I mean, I have been laughing all day about all of this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will be back next week with um, our second series um, about these kind of more um, teen and tween 80s and 90s trends that revolve around hair. Oh, I can't wait, guys. You, it was such a crazy time for hair. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, there's plenty of trends. Trends we'd like to forget. <laughs> Seriously, when we were talking about these last week, I was like, how are we not bald right now? I don't know. All I have no idea. That we did to our hair. <laughs> the processing. Yeah. And, and and we look terrible. Oh, we looked horrible. <laughs> we looked horrible. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, until next week. Thank you. Bye. Bye.